This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My name is Alex Holmes, and this is Time to Talk. This week, I have author Jason Watt on the show. I always kind of tell people, like, you don't, you don't pick writing, writing picks you, and it just becomes this thing that you, yeah. you're, you're shackled with whether you want to or not. I, and I truly believe that because it, like, now part of it is, is chicken or the egg in a certain degree. Like, my personality type is I'm a very much an introvert kind of, you know, not a loner, but like I, I like quiet spaces and, you know, small numbers of people. Um, so I like to be at home alone most of the time. So that fits right in line with being a writer. Jason is the author of Hell of a Book, the story of a writer on a book tour who begins to lose his grip on reality. It really is a fascinating book, but this conversation with Jason goes deeper than that. In this episode, we discuss the healing nature of writing and what it means to be a Black writer today. Do we need to have the qualifier of Black to be seen as a notable writer, citizen, person? Do we always have to work through our trauma and place them in our stories? Jason and I have that conversation today. But before we get into this Heart to Heart, have you read the Heart to Heart letters? These are a series of letters I write semi-weekly, three short essays about what's on my heart, tapping into life as I know it. For more information, head over to alexholmes.co and subscribe to the Heart to Heart letters. Join the Facebook group, Get my book and be a part of a growing community rooted in love, belonging, and connection. It's all on you now. Now, let's get into this one. It's hell of a show. Welcome, Jason, to Time to Talk. How are you doing? How's everything going over there? Pretty good. That's pretty good here. It's afternoon, kind of overcast and cloudy, but not too bad. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're down in, you say, North Carolina. Yeah, southeastern North Carolina. We're down near where the hurricanes come through every year and flatten the earth. Oh, wow, okay. And nobody moves away. Yeah. <laughs> is, it, is it a frightening experience, a hurricane? I've never experienced one. I don't know. I've been here. I've lived here my entire life. It's a thing for like you get used to it. It's like people that live in earthquake zones. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm so used to hurricanes that I just sleep through most of them. But yeah, they're definitely serious. But, you know, I'm used to it. Oh, good. Right. So, welcome to Time to Talk. This is... A pleasure to have you here. We're going to talk a bit about your book, Hell of a Book. 
which is which is being lauded with a, with a lot of amazing comparisons over here in the UK. I have to say, it's like it's got you know it's that for people that are drawn to things like I may destroy you and Get Out, and you know with a huge humorous take on that. But before I get into that, I wanted to get into kind of who are you? Like what do you what do you what do you do and why and why you do it? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am a full time author. Have been for almost nine years now. Um, so I grew up in the South, like same small town, actually still live in this little small 600 people town in Southeast North Carolina. And it is definitely the South. So you've got like the racism element. We, all of America has that element. And that's a whole other discussion, which we can come back to later. Okay. Um, but I grew up wanting to be a writer about 14. I decided I wanted to be a writer. Um, I got more serious about it when I was in my early twenties, went to school for it, got a creative writing degree and a master's. Um, then I went and answered phones at Verizon Wireless for four years because that's what you do with a master's in poetry. You get a job you hate and you work there. Um, but as I, as I was working there, I was still writing novels. And then in 2012, I wrote a novel called The Returns, which did well enough that I was able to quit my day job and become a full-time author. And I've been writing ever since. Well, Hell of a Book is my fourth novel now and still moving along. So yeah, that's Mostly who I am as far as the business side. Personally, I'm just um, pretty pretty laid back, not take myself too seriously kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Read a lot, play a lot of video games. I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because it's fun. Mm-hmm. I think that pretty much sums it up. Okay. Let's talk about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu just for a little bit because... I'd love to. I think... <laughs> this could be the whole hour. Yeah, because <laughs> I think that I have, I have kind of browsed over several websites around Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and hovered mm-hmm. over the... Should I take a trial class? Should I go for a trial session? Should. I'm not 100% sure. Convince me. What is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and what is the best? All right, I'm going to make it sound horrible, but just make sure that like, just trust me when I tell you that it's totally awesome. Um, So Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is, you know, if you want to get a dictionary definition term for it, um, it is essentially a ground, grappling-based martial arts. Um, You spend most of your time on the ground, on the mats, you do a lot of submission locks and chokes and things like that. Um, people oftentimes ask what it is. I tell them, you know, think about the ultimate fighting championship, but you take away all the punching and kicking, all the stand-up punching and kicking. So it's just, you're on the ground and you're kind of, you know, trying to submit the other person. But that, that doesn't really do it justice. Um, like me personally and people that I've spoken to who have also been in jiu for a while, like it is a really interesting kind of physical intellectual kind of place to be mm-hmm. um it is a physical chess game that you play out over and over and over and the longer you do it the more you train with people and this is why i like it becomes almost like a cult people people want you to come they want you to stay there because it's so much fun um but you find yourself growing emotionally in the life like you have a lot of personal growth in this place where you're getting beat up and smashed into the mat and all this oh, stuff wow. happening but you you have this really interesting personal growth journey where like you spend months having a problem and then the person you're training with helps you solve the problem and you help them solve their problem. And it just becomes this really beautiful kind of dance that the two of you do and your whole group does and you're all kind of helping to make each other more resilient, better people. And that becomes this really powerful place to be. Mm. Um, there's a lot of, I tell people like, it's, it's a surprisingly strong mental health boost to go to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Like when I don't go, I find myself getting really depressed and like, just not having the best life when I'm not going to jujitsu. But as soon as I'm going and I've been by like, unit for a few weeks steady, like the whole world just seems a lot better. I find it interesting as well, just about looking at how men, because it, it's it, actually, it's been largely men. I know one woman who does it 
Um, but it's largely been in the context of men that I've had these conversations with about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And it's this thing, I mean, I study masculinity quite a bit. Um, it's mm -hmm. a lot, it's something that I'm super interested in just as a concept. Um, and a lot of the things I've been looking at show that men go into the body a lot more than they do anywhere else. Um, what was the, what were the drivers to bring you over to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Like what pushed you to do that? Um, it grew, you know, I, I was a fan of like watching the ultimate fighting championship, like long ago. I mean, the first started out, I was a really big fan of that. Um, I had a few friends who were into martial arts, uh, mostly guys as well. Um, and they, you know, a couple of them had taken a little bit and it just, it was seemed really cool, seemed really fun. Um, so I went and did it kind of on a lark just because it just seemed cool and interesting. Um, and then once I got there, like, you know, the interest will get you through the door, but the interest won't make you stay. Um, the thing that makes you stay at a gym and keep pursuing the pursuing jujitsu is like that component of it's this really difficult thing. And I think that it, there's a there's a place in life where we miss difficult tasks. Mm -hmm. Like that's why people mountain climb, why people do like long term difficult hobbies. Um, is you do it because you have this really interesting growth and kind of you meet this challenge a day and a day and a day. Um, and so that from got a, that's why I got into it for me. It's definitely a a largely male kind of population that does it. Um, but there are a significant amount of women who do it and, you know, many of them are just very talented. So it, I don't know, there's, there's, I think there's a lot to unpack when you start talking about jujitsu and this may be a bit off topic. Um, but there is a physical closeness that you kind of have in jujitsu that you don't have in any of the context of human existence. Okay. Um, outside of like fighting and like, you know, intimate kind of interactions like that. Um, but it's weird. Like you, you get used to these very strange, you get used to this physical connection with these people. Um, even though it's like a, a push and pull, a kind of like a, cont a, a contest kind of physical kind of, you know, confront that confrontational, cause it's not really that. Mm. Um, but you, it is adversarial. Mm. I'll say that it's adversarial. Um, but it does kind of create this very interesting physical feedback that you don't get anywhere else. And I think that also is a part of the, the connection that people kind of feel to it. Mm. How did you deal with the added pressure because you said that when you don't go and you don't feel like you've been you you get your mood changes you feel the mood change mm -hmm. with covid then how how did that how did that do i don't know what's i don't know what the specific rules were like in north carolina for you but i know that obviously there's this big no contact no close contact mm -hmm. you know, physical contact for for there was that for a long time a lot of people are in the uk specifically are trying to navigate out of that no contact situation and move more into being in physical spaces with people mm -hmm. brazilian jiu-jitsu is a, a very tactile sport how was that for you it was tough like that's the, that's the quick dirty answer it was very difficult I remember back in, I think it was May of last year was when the restrictions came out and said, you know, all the, all the gyms were closed. Yeah. You know, all the you know, social distancing, we kind of got, we get the lockdown base. I think it was April to May. Um, but so in May they shut down the gym. So I couldn't go to the, to the gym I used to go to. But what we did was there was a family, really cool people that I've trained with for a few years now. Um, we kind of had our own quarantine bubble, mm -hmm. but we were all quarantining, but we just stayed, you know, we, we would have, we would train with each other. Like I would go to their house. And we would train for each, with each other um, and just, we were all quarantined together. We didn't go any, to any other, any other places training. It was just kind of us. Um, so I did that until about August. 
And then in August, some people were starting to go back to the gym. Some gyms were reopening under, you know, it, it wasn't really advised for people to reopen gyms, but gyms were reopening. So the people I was training with, they decided to kind of go back to the gym. Um, and I was like, well, that's kind of breaking quarantine. So I'm going to basically just stop training for now. So from August until I want to say April of this year, mm. um, I couldn't train at all. And that was because in April I got my vaccination shot. And then, so then I kind of started opening things back up. Um, but from, from August until April, I had no jujitsu training and that was really tough. Like particularly over the winter, you know, winters are always tough psychologically and emotionally anyway. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a weird kind of loneliness. Like you miss, you miss the people, you miss the, 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 the endorphins you get at the end of a workout, like all those components tied together, which is made for a really challenging kind of few months there. Um, so when I did go back, I was really happy to finally get back in the gym and kind of get back to that, that headspace of feeling kind of content at the end of the day, tired and fatigued and content and all that kind of good stuff. Um, yeah, it was, it was a tough period. Honestly, it was very tough. Mm. That's fair. I was trying to back into a lot of different martial arts. I used to do a lot of Kung Fu growing up. I mm. dabbled in things like Taekwondo and other, and other sports. And I was looking over the lockdown, kind of what, what would I want to get into next if that was something mm. I want to get into? Because I feel like I like using the body just in different ways, you know, because there's only so much that you can push and pull and lift uh, mm. to, to, for an extended amount of time. And I figured that putting body into context with regards to martial arts is always interesting to me. So yeah, I was just interested in that as well. I'm speaking to author Jason Mott about his new book, Hell of a Book. Waterstones says that the book is uncategorizable and fizzing with playful invention and intelligence. Mott's surrealist gem centers on a mercurial writer who has visions of a young black boy who may or may not be the child whose recent murder by a police officer has sparked protests across the country. Before we get into hearing about his writing process, quick question. Have you joined the Facebook group yet? It's the best place to have a direct input into the direction of the show, ask questions, and suggest guests. So head over to the link in the show notes. Let's get back to Jason. When it comes to your writing then, it's a, it's a very, and I've touched on this quite a bit, but it's a very like solitary profession. Yeah. Uh, why did you choose this? Because <laughs> like I, I, I spent the most of the pandemic writing my book and I was like, like really just, it's just me and the words. And I sat down and for, and for the, for the nine months that I wrote the book, I was literally sitting here thinking, why am I doing this? <laughs> and um, it was a very lonely experience, you know, because we had a pandemic and the conversation with the editors and things are over Zoom or WhatsApp messages or mm -hmm. when they, whereas they would usually probably be, I'd go into the offices maybe and then kind of sit with them and talk through chapters, ideas and things like that and kind of, you know, go, go that way. But it was just very much a solitary experience. And yeah. I always wonder when it comes to novelists in particular because it is like you're you're, you're building and creating a world and you're mm -hmm. putting it into things whereas i write pretty much non-fiction so i'm kind of like pulling through ideas and putting that and getting them down what made you pick this solitary profession and <laughs> for the rest of your life 
I always kind of tell people like, you don't, you don't pick writing, writing picks you. And it just becomes this thing that you, yeah. you're, you're shackled with whether you want to or not. I, and I truly believe that because, um, it, now part of it is, is chicken or the egg in a certain degree. Like my personality type is I'm a very much an introvert kind of, you know, not a loner, but like, I, I like quiet spaces and, you know, small numbers of people. Um, so I like to be at home alone most of the time. So that fits right in line with being a writer. Now, am I that way because I'm a writer or am I a writer because I'm that way? There's that whole thing there. Um, but I think that I know for me in particular, like I can't go without writing. Like that's the only reason I still write is that I just, I cannot do, I cannot exist emotionally, spiritually, creatively. I cannot exist without the opportunity to put my thoughts onto a page. Cause that's how I actually, that's how I filter the world. That's how I sort and understand and dissect the world around me through putting it on a page. Um, and so that's the, that's the only reason I write. And so that's the reason it's kind of taken me this far and kind of stayed with me. Yeah. Um, cause I've had periods where like, I kind of tried to walk away from it and they were just very bad periods of existence. Cause again, if I'm not allowed to write about things, I don't understand the world very much. And I don't understand the world very much even when I'm writing, mm -hmm. but without the writing to help me make sense of things, it is just a much darker kind of timeline to be in. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's what I mean when I tell people, when I say that I think writing chooses people, um, it's, I think all art does that, like whatever artists in general, the thing that you do, that you obsess over, that you love, like it usually helps you figure out your existence in some way. For sure. It helps you solve the problems of being a person. Mm. And that just happens to be writing for me. Yeah. I've always used writing as a healing tool for myself, mm -hmm. as a way of clarifying the thoughts and the feelings that I have. It's mm -hmm. the, strongest form of expression, um, like before speaking for me, obviously I'd spend days speaking to people on this podcast and in uh, public mm -hmm. speaking quite often, but the writing is a special place. It's such a sacred time to yeah. sit down because yeah. you, so once you sit down with the idea, it's just you, the page, and you're just getting the ideas down. And I think that that's something, um, to look at too. I know for me, um, like work with writing novels is an opportunity to really play with a lot of ideas, um, which is a method to healing for me. Um, because so many times my characters will do the healing that I myself am still struggling with. And by watching the characters attempt to heal and watching them fail at it sometimes and maybe have progress in a certain way, that actually helps me with my own actual healing and my own kind of um, challenges that I carry through life. Um, it's funny, I've got a therapist and we, 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 every few weeks we have a session, um, and so much of our sessions center upon, I was writing this thing and made me think about this and let's talk about this for the rest of the session. Um, and you know, oftentimes my, she'll say, well, have you thought about doing, or think going back to this moment and thinking about it in this way? And I'll be like, well, I hadn't thought about that, but I'll, I'll write a scene that does that. And that helps me solve a lot of my stuff and helps me kind of have this emotional growth and healing that helps. Mm. Um. So that's, that's part of why I'm such a big fan of using writing in that way is that it creates such a free space to really explore the, the dark and the light, like all the things that you might be afraid to tell a person in, you know, in conversation, you can explore them on the page and then actually stand back and look at what you have and see how that actually impacts you. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. That's how you use your therapy sessions. How long have you been going? Um, I think it's been about three three years now, maybe four years, actually, by the time I think about it. Um, yeah. And so we, we have, we meet like every two or three weeks. Um, some, you know, sometimes it's just kind of check-ins. Other times there'll be issues I'm thinking about. 
um, when I was working on this current novel, Hell of a Book, um, a lot of our sessions were about that, about like what the novel was actually doing to me. Because so much of the novel was me delving into um, my personal past, the, the kind of cultural existence I live in being an American um, and trying to sort through all of that, my feelings of like powerlessness and, you know, ineptitude and um, the desire for things to be different than they are. And like all of those kind of emotions came up a lot in the therapy sessions and they eventually turned into things I wrote about. Um, it's funny how my, my therapy and my writing feed off of each other very nicely. Mm -hmm. They complement each other very nicely. Yeah. So you just said that you, you know, being an American, and I know that that is quite a loaded term. It's quite heavy because of just the history that comes with the word. Because I think that to be black in this part of the world is everything that we want to be is usually qualified with the word black first. Right. So, you know, here we've got black British. Um, mm -hmm. where, where you are, you have African-American. They are very different terms um, with mm -hmm. different histories. But, mm -hmm. you know, it can go down to black writers, black authors, black teachers. Like, yeah. it's never just being the thing. Mm -hmm. And I always found it super interesting. So when you said American, in my, in, it, it shouldn't feel odd for me to hear mm -hmm. that. But when I hear black people say things such as, you know, I'm British or I'm English or I'm American or I'm a Canadian without qualifying it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's something in me that holds the question mark. And I have to, yeah. I have to interrogate that small voice that asks why a lot mm -hmm. of the time. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about yeah. the, that, that qualification? Oh, I, I hate it. Like I really absolutely hate it. And at the same time, I recognize that it is something that we are all programmed with, myself included. Um, I still use the qualifiers a lot of the times um, because it is the image of the brochure of Western history is an image of a white man doing things. Anyone else who tries to kind of plant a claim on being a part of Western history, whether it be, you know, British or American or Canadian or whatever, if you're not a white male, the, that, that bucks against the advertised narrative of what that means to be that thing, to be American or be whatever. And so we so oftentimes... Um, we get qualified and we seek qualifications from others. Like, well, are you a black American or are you, you know, Asian American? Or are you like, we look for that qualifier. You can't just be, I'm an American or I'm British. Like, it, it, we've been so programmed for hundreds of years to think of that image of American or British as one specific thing that it's, it's just a knee jerk reaction. It's like you have lost dolls. We just trained for it. And so part of my challenge has been like, Again, I'm, I'm never allowed to just be an author. I'm always the black author. Um, and that is very frustrating. Um, and I think about in terms of like how many other, you know, minority authors in all, in all kind of iterations of minorities have just had careers crushed out from underneath them, had their voices completely crushed because of the fact that like they weren't allowed to just be the artists that they were. They had to, they always kind of have to be qualified as being this type of artist or this type of person. Um, so it, it definitely bothers me that that exists. And at the same time, I have to concede the fact that like it does exist and I can, I can definitely try to change it and try to mitigate it and start conversations about it to hopefully kind of soften it a bit, but it'll, it's not going to go away in my lifetime. Like it's still going to be a part of life until I, until I pass away. And so trying to kind of 
hold those two, that dissonance in my brain of like, this thing exists that I cannot flip a switch and change with the fact that like, I want to change that thing. Um, it's just difficult. Mm-hmm. Do you find that it's harder based on the content that you write as well? Um, cause when, when black, when black authors, when we write things mm-hmm. pertaining to black character with, to black stories, mm-hmm. should we write that if we want to be seen as authors or writers that without having right. to qualify that? There has to be space for both, for both versions of that. Like there have to, there has to be space for black authors to tell black, quote unquote, black stories. Um, because one of the ways that you silence a people is you take away their voice to tell their own stories. You take away their ability to tell their own tales. And that's something that has proven true throughout Western history for just hundreds of years, not, if not thousands of years. And so there needs, there has to be just flat out has to be that space where a black author can tell a story that is black, you know, a black, quote unquote, black story, black characters, all that kind of thing. It talks about the blackness of being who they are. And yet at the same time, there also has, and a hard stress has to be a space where a black author or any other minority author can just tell the story they want to tell Mm -hmm. without having that lens of their, you know, their qualifying identity placed upon it. Okay. Um, you know, so, you know, there, you know, if, if a black author were to write, you know, the old man in the sea, you know, like Henley, sorry, um, that it would, the lens of a race would be put upon their story. It just, it, it just would be. And that's part of the problem. There should be a space for authors of color and a, a minority authors in general to just tell that tale. Um, so for me personally, I've kind of, nab- I've had that, I've seen both sides of that. When The Return came out, the, the novel is not about race. There's a few, there's a few small discussions about race and about how we treat other people, you know, quote unquote others. Um, but it is not a novel that is centered on the idea of race. And yet, almost from the time it rolled out, because it was written by a black author, I was very much the black author wrote this. Like it, it became a discussion about race a lot of times. It became a discussion about all these other things, um, and so I've kind of struggled with that too and fro, leaning into it sometimes, sometimes pulling away from it. Because again, there there are discussions like we need authors, we need minority authors who are willing to talk about who they are and talk about their existence. Because otherwise, their voice doesn't get heard. And yet, the other side of the coin is they shouldn't always have to. Mm. And trying to find that balance is, I think, the difficult part of things. Do you think that it would be beneficial for Black authors to anonymize themselves? Are we so far gone that we can that, that authors can actually anonymize themselves nowadays? Anyway, can we do that? What do you think? I about think that? there's room for it, but I, I also think that it would be it's very difficult to do nowadays. Mm. Only because so much of, particularly right now in this current moment, I'll say starting from like the last you know, five years until now, um, there's so much of, does the identity of the author match the narrative that they're telling? Um, we think about these books that people have written about, about people who were not minorities or telling minority tales and like kind of having, you know, backlash from that, um, which is a very layered and complex discussion of, of how to do that. Because again, the moment that we're in right now, which I think is a really powerful, good, positive moment, is this moment where the minority voices are planning a claim and saying, hey, you cannot tell my story anymore. Like, I'm, on, I'm telling my story and you're not allowed to kind of impinge upon that. Um, so, so much of right now, this, this current moment in writing and in, in art and creativity is about people owning that identity. And so if anonymity were to kind of come into it, I think it's possible, um, but it, 
would be, it wouldn't be on a large scale. I think there could be one or two books there or whatever that came out that may do it. But right now, so much of it is people not hiding anymore. People are really planting the flag and saying, this is who I am. This is what I did. Um, so I think there, so yeah, I, th- I think it's possible. I think it's just difficult. I think that the climate right now, which I think is a very positive climate, the climate right now is very much about those individuals stepping out from behind that veil and really owning those moments. So I think that anonymity just doesn't fit the zeitgeist right now, but it, you know, that is not impossible for sure. I'm speaking to Jason Watt, the author of Hell of a Book. But before we get back into the show, I want to let you know about the Heart to Heart Letters over at timetotalk.substack.com. So semi-weekly, I send three essays direct to your inbox and they are chiefly about all the things I tend to talk about. Life, life as we know it, nostalgia. Generally, it's a heart-to-heart. So there are loads of topics around love and emotionality in there. There's a segment in there that I've started as well called Ask Alex, or I am playing on the name of around anxiety letters, where every so often you guys write into me anonymously about anything around stress or anxiety, shame, and I'll give you my take on what you have sent me. Lately, I've been writing a lot about nostalgia, so that's what's on my heart right now, and I will be delving deeper into love and the realms of self-love and self-care. If you want to be a part of this journey, click the link in the description and head over to alexholmes.co or timetotalk.substack.com and click the heart to heart letters. Have a read and if you like them, subscribe and share. It'll be a pleasure to have you there. All right, let's get back to Jason as he tells us about Hell of a Book. P.S. He subscribes to the heart to heart letters too. All right, let's go. You've written this book, Hell of a Book. Tell us a bit about the book coming up. Sure. Um, so Hell of a Book is about an author-owned book tour. Um, he's just written a very big novel and he's touring for it. And as we kind of meet the author and follow him, you start to figure out that he has a very, let's say, loose grip on reality. Um, he has trouble distinguishing between his imagination and the real world. And as he's on this book tour, he meets this 10-year-old kid uh, who's known simply, is known simply as The Kid. Um, and he tries to get to know who this kid is. He doesn't even know if the kid is real or not. The kid seems to be following him around from place to place. And, um, so during the backdrop of all that, there is a shooting by the police of an African-American boy. And we begin to kind of delve into that story of who this kid was, how he was shot, what that means to the author. The author is essentially trying to understand how he exists in this world and like his role he has, he should or should not play in this world of, um, you know, police shootings and this, this world of people trying to claim their identity and people kind of claim, claim who they are. Um, so that's kind of the rough and ugly of what the book's about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit of a comedy. It's a bit of a drama. It's a, it's a lot of political and socio, socio kind of, it's kind of social commentary, social satire. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun though. It's a lot of fun, but it was fun at times are right. And also terrible at times mm-hmm. are right. I'll say that. Yeah. I want to ask a question about, you know, about the, the, the nature of black masculinity in America. And, um, mm-hmm. I have this sense that there is a huge feeling of invisibility mm-hmm. yet a 
it's like a it's a weird thing. I can't I can't explain it. It's like a weird tension between feeling invisible but being always always being seen. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. can you speak to that just a bit? Yeah. Uh, I think you I think you just phrased it perfectly. There is there's a duality of you are always on the outsider, um, for both positive and negative. Like, so you are always seen because you don't fit the mold. Like you are, you are the black male, you are the scary black male. Yeah. Like either, even if you don't want to be, even if you don't fit the physical, whatever that quote unquote image is that, you know, Hollywood and the press and everything else is kind of cooked up. Um, if you, if your skin tone is a certain color, you are the scary black male. And so you feel very much seen and watched and observed and kind of stalked all, all the time. And yet at the same time, there is this invisibility because you know that the image that the person sees of you is not who you are. And so that's where that invisibility comes from, because the person that you actually are is it just goes unseen all the time. Um, and the people, the people that you oftentimes interact with don't want to really know who you are. They just, they see you, they judge you, they decide who you are and they move on with their lives. And so you, there's that duality of you are as a black male, you are always front and center. You are always seen and observed and stopped and watched and all those bad kind of, kind of monikers there. And yet at the same time, no one knows who you are. Like no one ever gets to see or find out who the person that you actually are. Like maybe you're just a weird nerd who's awkward at times and, but you, but because you're black, there's that duality. So yeah, it, it is a weird kind of sort of visibility and invisibility at the same time. Mm. So why did you write the book? What was like, there's, there's so much going on, you know, mm -hmm. you, you, you just touched on some of the themes that are in there. You've got the, the author who has, he doesn't know whether his, the figment of his imagination is real or not. You mm -hmm. have, and you have the, you said you had the shooting there. Um, what made you want to tap into those elements of, I want to say the black experience or just experience, um, there, what, what triggered the idea for hell of a book? A lot of frustration and powerlessness and sense of powerlessness. I said that's what it was. Like, um, you know, you get into the shootings of Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, like that. There's a there's such a long list of names um in the last, you know, ten years. And not even counting, you know, American history as a whole, but if you obviously go well beyond ten years. Um, but so there was this time when I had a buddy and I, he lives in Baltimore, went to college together. He's also a black male. Um, we were having these almost daily conversations about the shootings of someone, like almost every day we turn on the news or check our phone. And it was like, oh, you know, young black male shot by police here. And then like two days later, oh, black male shot here. And then two days later, black female, it was just this ongoing tide of these police shootings. And so he and I, he and I were getting on the phone and we would kind of unpack these things and talk about them and trying to like, trying to kind of be this, these kind of emotional braces for one another to kind of like not get overwhelmed by it. But the more we did it, the more overwhelmed we did get by it and just felt really frustrating and powerlessness and powerless. And somewhere in the midst of all that, like I said, like writing is the place where I kind of sort out these things. And I just decided that I was going to just write directly about it. Um, because few of my books have been very directly about my opinions on race, like they're very kind of distant and kind of far off. And so I just decided what the hell I'm gonna take it and just really tell the stories I want to story and I want to tell it and just see what happens. Um, so that's what brought it about. It was this desire to be a part of the conversation because at a certain point you, you just feel overwhelmed. I think being a minority, you, you have these ebbs and flows of being able to exist and be okay. Like you go through a period where it's like, okay, Life ain't perfect, but it ain't terrible either. And I can 
kind of, I can, if things, if the status quo holds, I could be optimistic about life. And then there'll be a period of just constant, you know, beratement and bad news and shootings and attacks and all kinds of things that you just, they push you down and you just have to kind of like eventually just burst against them. Otherwise they kind of, they pummel, they pummel you. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, this was me reaching a point of severe frustration and severe disheartenment and anguish and sadness and not wanting to sit with it, wanting to actually make it active and make it do something. And that's where the novel came. How are you feeling at this time with regards to just everything that's going on? I feel like there's this collective black heaviness that's going around. And so many people are, are dying for these stories and don't, the stories are there created off, off the back of so much, you know, pain. As I said earlier, the, 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 the comparison, not the comparisons, the grouping of the book with regards to Get Out and I May Destroy You and those, mm -hmm. those levels, um, which really do center on the black experience in particular areas and how that can go so wrong. Right. In so many different ways. <laughs> um, I want to know how you feel just having written it. And once you were, once you sat back and you had, and you'd written very cliched, the end, <laughs> um, at the end of the thing, sent it off to the, the, the powers that be. What was that like for your body? Like, where did all of that sit in you? It was, it was very kind of nerve wracking and frightening from honest about it. Um, because the book was such a divergence for what I've usually written. And there was so, it was so personal. There was so much of my, my, so much of the hiding that I typically, that authors typically do in fiction writing. Yeah, we hide so far behind our characters. Mm. Um, with this novel, it was so, so personal. And like, there was so little, so little distance between me and the, the content that I felt very exposed and very unsettled. Um, so I was very nervous about it. I'm still very nervous about it. Like, you know, the book comes out in my week and I'm still very nervous about it. But at the same time, like the challenge, I think that one thing I'm feeling right now is there is a sense of accomplishment, a very positive sense of um, kind of happiness in my gut of like, hey, I did this thing. Mm. Um, regardless of what happens, you know, I, I said the thing that I've been trying to say. I think that's, that was that's such a, cause that is an empowering moment to, to have the moment where you actually use your voice and you've had your voice has been inside you for however long and you finally use it to say the thing you've been wanting to say, you've been trying to say. So there's this strong sense of empowerment in that part of me. But then there's also the other part of me that says, what if you did all of this and it's just screaming into the wind, nothing changes. It doesn't impact anyone. It doesn't change anything at all. Um, what then? So there's that. And that's where the fear lives. That's where the fear and the, the sadness and all those kinds of negative feelings, you know, kind of exist. Because all the stories that are coming out, you know, now all the stories in the past that have come out about these topics, they all want to change the system. Like that's what they're here for. They, they want people to empathize. They want people to act. They want people, they're, they're saying, here's my pain, help me take it away. You have to like, let's stop this pain part of the, the, the cycle here. And so the fear becomes, you've done it all, you've said it all, you said it as best you could and still doesn't help. Mm. Um, so that creates this very, like I said, this very strong sense of uncertainty and um, kind of worry. So, so right now I kind of swing between, the pendulum swings between those two sides of my, my, my personality. Um, 
part of me is very proud and excited. The other part of me is not too optimistic, but it seems so. Yeah, it depends on what day of the week you catch me on. Okay. That's why the therapy comes so in, is so important, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, therapy is a great spot for... Well, well, I think one of the things that my therapist does really well is she helps me understand that all emotions are transitory, um, positive and negative. And so, so much of, you know, if I, if I get too bogged down in the negative side of things, and again, like kind of talking about this book and like a lot of my, my worry, you know, my, when I was working on it, my, my conversations with her were about what if, what if I can't say the thing the correct way? What if I can't say it right? And then once I finished the book and, you know, was, so now we're close to publication and, you know, so now the question is, the anxiety is, what if it doesn't do anything? Um, and so the therapy does a great job of helping me to both understand that, you know, the duty of the duty of changing the world both is and is not set upon anybody. Um, you know, we, we kind of have a duty to be pretty good people and be the best people we can and try to, you know, nudge the, the stone of positivity in a good direction. But the idea that we're individually supposed to just fix it all, um, my therapy does a good job of helping me kind of mitigate that. Cause I think I'm, my personality type is I want to fix things. Like anything that's broken, I want to fix it. And you have to kind of resign yourself to the fact that like you can't fix everything. And therapy has helped me really understand that and really kind of be more okay with that, mm. which is a, you know, pretty good place to be, honestly. I'm going to ask you some resilient questions. <sighs> let me, let me have a, let me, let me d- dive into my resilient bag. I'm putting out, <laughs> I'm putting out <laughs> Okay. That's not easy. I mean, you're a writer, so this one should come quite easy. What is the quote <laughs> that has changed your life the most? Quote that has changed my life the most. That is it. Oh man, that's a tough question. There, there's one quote that I come back and I'm sure I'm going to butcher it now that I'm trying to actually remember it. Um, but it's a, so an old samurai, I think it's a Miyamatsu, um, Musashi that said it, but like he said that victory, victory today is a victory over myself of yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's simply just a quote about self-improvement and the idea that you're just, you're just trying to be the better person today than you were yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say, I'm sure I'm butchering that quote right now, but I, that, that is, it's an idea that has stuck with me for a lot of years and has helped me a lot. Mm-hmm. When, when did it come to you first? When I was in my twenties, like late teens, early twenties, I've always been a big philosophy reader. Mm-hmm. Um, I still am. And so, um, around my late teens, early twenties, I was reading a lot of Asian philosophy. Um, and I came across in the book of five rings and a few other books like that, at, um, Hagakuri, a couple other kind of samurai philosophy texts. Um, and that, that's kind of where I come to think, stumbled across that. Mm. Okay. I love philosophy. I think that there are so many. It's just so many lessons in a lot, yeah. a lot of different texts. I'm, I'm currently just slowly making my way through meditations. Marcus oh, Marcus. nice. That is, that's a cornerstone of my yeah, life. I've just been, they're just like, I think, cause I got to a point where I was just stuck on like several pages and I just didn't mm-hmm. move through mm-hmm. those. And I think, and today I literally moved through those pages and I moved past it. And I, yep. and I reckon, and I recognize the, the power of going further. <laughs> It yes. is a book because I feel like Meditations is a book where um, you can pick nuggets out of mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. but it's very interesting when you read it in a flow. Marcus Aurelius is definitely my, probably my favorite philosophy of all, philosopher of all time, just because that the Stoics, 
to have such a such an influence on Western culture, but also just the influence on me. Because mm. um, in meditation, like you say, meditation is for anyone who hasn't read it. Or I definitely recommend they read it. But it does such a good job of calming you and kind of recentering you mm-hmm. and helping you to understand that like so much of the chaos that's swirling around you isn't real. Um, and so if you can kind of settle with meditations, you know, one, one, you know, one quote a day or something like that, like it does such a good job of just helping to get rid of the noise. So that's good reading right there. Very good reading. Okay. Tell me about a film that has made a huge impact on you. <laughs> um, it's a lot of films. I'm a big film buff. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll say what I'll say, weirdly enough, an actor who has made a big influence on me is Nicolas Cage. Okay. I was not um, expecting that. I know. See, there you go. I think you weren't going to expect Not here. Uh, it's funny because um, there's a there's a Nick Cage cameo in the novel. Um, like, I've been a Nick Cage fan since, like, Raising Arizona. Like, Raising Arizona is a film that includes the actor and the director that actually has a strong influence on me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Raising Arizona was stars Nick Cage, just directed by the Coen brothers, two of my favorite okay. directors of all time. Yeah. But the reason I, the reason I actually like Nick Cage, you know, he kind of gets, the mean, the joke is that he does bad movies and he's kind of a bad actor and does all this kind of stuff. But the more I've watched him, both in film and like ready, interviews with him, with him and like kind of heard him speak, he fascinates me because I think he understands how the world sees him and he controls that narrative in a very specific way. And we take it back to our conversation earlier about being a, you know, a black man in America and so much of it is how the world sees you and, you know, and just a black person anywhere, like how others see you and how you're unable to kind of break out of that mold they put you in. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick Cage fascinates me because he, he understands, in my opinion, I haven't met him, so I don't know, but in my opinion, he understands the lens that is put upon him and he steers that narrative. And I find that to be very fascinating and very powerful. I think that one of the hardest things a person can really do is understand how you look to other people. Mm. Um, and then not only to understand that, but to actually like control that and find your space, find who you are within that. I think that that's the, that's one of my life goals is to find my space in the chaos of how others see me. Um, and I think Nick Cage does that. And I know that people don't, people probably don't think of him that way, but to me, that's why he fascinates me. Cause I, I feel like he long time ago came to understand who he was and how others saw him. And he just said, I don't care. Like I am this person and this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. So I find that to be very powerful and very fascinating. Okay. Admittedly, the extent of my knowledge of Nick Cage is the national treasure franchise. Hey, that's a, that's a good franchise. I, I enjoyed those movies. <laughs> I, I didn't hear what anybody says. I, you know, it was just, it was the one time I could really sub, like, get rid of yep. the, because you know, you know, there's this romantic, there's a, yeah, what's the word? There's this romanticization of the founding fathers of America. Yep. And obviously yep. we know the truth. <laughs> I can get that. But exactly. sometimes there are some films where you just have to just suspend reality. Yeah. you like, mm-hmm. wow, there's all these kind of. Oh, what's this in George Washington's <laughs> house and, da, 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 and then you just have fun for yeah, you just have to just kind of like uh, like the, the rest of the stuff just like put it, is, put it on yeah. pause just for exactly like hour he, and a half or, or like. that's why I, his body of work has something for everything man. if you want to just forget you got you got your national treasures if you want more serious films he's got those if you want just some bad movies he's got those it's like it's a beautiful body of work that he has it's called <laughs> multifaceted Ballet. There you go. There you go. Is what he brings <laughs> to his filmography. Yes. <laughs> Somebody walks into a bookstore and they're looking for the book of you. What is the title of the book? 
that they pick up. So is this an existing book or is this a book I make up? A book you make up. Mm. What does it say? I think the title is What Happened? <laughs> I think that's the title of the book of me. Because um, so much of my life is just trying to understand what happened. And, that, that, and I mean that both on the small scale and on the big scale of life. Um, so much of it is me overthinking things and looking back on moments and conversations. I'll be, you know, I'll spend the next six months thinking about this conversation you and I have just had for the last hour, just trying to unpack what I said and how I said it. Um, so I think that the idea of, you know, what happened definitely sums up a lot of me mm. trying to understand how I got to here and what influenced that and how those things changed. And I was talking to someone a while back about how when I was 14, that's when I decided I wanted to be a writer. Like I was like, I, I read a book called Grendel by John Gardner and it just, it, it struck me, it struck a chord that was so powerful. I said, I want to do this. I want to be a writer one day. And now you fast forward, I am 43. So you fast forward almost four decades or three decades. Um, and I'm doing that thing. Like I'm, I'm a full-time author, have been for almost 10 years now. And, and, there, and I still don't understand how it happened. Like, there's still part of me is like, what happened? Like, how, how did we get, how'd you, how'd you pull that off? Like, how are we here mm. doing this thing that 14-year-old childhood me seemed like such an impossible goal? And here I am now, 40, 43, and doing that thing. Mm. So yeah, I think what happened, because it, it reflects my constant sense of bafflement at the world. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show. This oh, week. Thanks for having me. It's been, a, it's an amazing pleasure. Um, obviously before you go, um, one song for the playlist. Um, one song for the playlist, uh, I was thinking about this earlier, I think, um, Neighbors by J. Cole. So if you, if people, people all know he's a rapper from North Carolina, actually. Um, so that's also why I'm part of a big fan of his, but Neighbors is a powerful song that talks a lot about that, that distance between how the world sees you and how, and who you are. So there's also a story behind it. So. If anyone hasn't heard it or doesn't know the story, Google the story behind Neighbors and you'll get some interesting stuff there. Neighbors by J. Cole, okay? And two books that my listeners and the communities you go away with. Um, so I would say one is Black Book by Matteo Ascaripour. Um, I, I read that a few weeks ago and it's just, it's stuck with me. So I definitely recommend that people. And then also Monsters, it's a graphic novel by a guy called Barry Windsor Smith. Um, I'm a big comic book nerd and he's been writing for decades and this is probably his magnum opus. And it, it touches on race and war and kind of the, the American system and how all those things kind of tie together to just destroy a lot of people. Okay. Um, so yeah, very powerful stuff. Monsters by Barry Windsor Smith. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me again, Jason. And that is a hell of a book. Make sure you guys go out and grab yourselves a copy. Now, links will be in the description. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thank you for listening to Time to Talk this week. This episode was produced by Pure Creation Media. Thank you again to Jason Mott for joining me on the show and looking forward to speaking to you all next week. Next week. Next week.